that's what it is. And that's why I think these records it, it have such a strong feeling of, of suffering. And it's not because the music was so difficult or, or the people were difficult, but uh, yeah, it's the duration. It's the, it's, it's the things go on so long, you kind of start to lose it. I'm Christopher Hooten. And I'm David Rapson. And for the next few minutes, we're living on coffee and flowers. Boxer makes me think of a time I was walking around New York City at four in the morning and having a conversation about you. demo from Mistaken for Strangers, I called it Pixies. But I called it that because I was playing this like feedback squalls behind the bridge of this Gibson Epiphone, this Epiphone guitar that I actually stole from Scott at the Sheridan, um, that you can play the behind the bridge and it, and it kind of, you still get the chordal harmonic information, but it sounds like weird sort of Pixies feedback squall or something. It didn't really, yeah, I don't listen to that song now and think it sounds like a Pixies song, but um, that was kind of the idea. Um, But then when Brian, when we got together and we're playing and Brian sort of figured out that beat, which is definitely... It's funny. I, I I don't know what which it's it's it actually it's kind of funny because Interpol had just finished Antics up at Tarkin Studios where we were recording and it it's one of those songs. It's like kind of borrowed from one of Sam Fogarino's beats, but sped up and re redone a little bit. Um, but it, but obviously when Brian got that, it just took on. It became it. It really took flight. You have to do it running, but you do everything that they ask you to. Because you don't mind seeing yourself in a picture as long as you look far away, as long as you look removed. The opening line here is actually reworked from a movie. I knew guys like you in the army. You do any terrifying thing you're asked to do, but you have to do it running. You think you can outrun your fears, your doubts. The only thing that really scares you guys is stillness. That's uh, Steven Spielberg's Munich, Kieran Hines' character, mm-hmm. um, speaking. And it's, uh, the film was about Operation Wrath of God, the Israeli government's like retaliation against the Palestine Liberation Organization after the Munich massacre at the 1972 Summer Olympics. So yeah, it's we're in a completely different world with that line, or at least where it came from. But you know, in the in the quote in the movie, he's talking about military efficiency, which is about efficacy sure but i think it's also about how if you do everything instinctively habitually and at speed you know if you're doing it running it kind of desensitizes you to the horrible shit that you're having to do or you're having to witness and i think that kind of can apply to everyday life here as well you know it's doing what is expected of you by doing a lot of a lot of it kind of on autopilot Mm -hmm. you know doing it running i think is something a lot of people can yeah can relate to is that experience of like finding a kind of calm when you're in motion um, and it's when you actually stop that you can sort of start to freak out, you know, as the, as the movie says, the only thing that really scares you is stillness. So that's, that's how it seems to apply to me. Definitely. Yeah. 
And this this sounds like a very very professional reflection. Like this is my job. This is what I do. Um, and I'll do anything as long as I don't have to stop and think about it. It sounds manic. It sounds really like rushed and stressed out and like pressurized. Yeah. Also, I just love that line about the the smiling in the pictures. Like I don't really smile in photos, and if I do, it's rarely like a beaming smile. I think it's I guess it's partly a self conscious thing about how I'll look, but also I guess I. I I do want to look far away, detached, removed. I don't really know. I don't really know why. I don't really know why a lot of us do this. I mean, I guess it's kind of arrogant, you know. You're trying to look like you're too cool for the photo or the situation. But I mean, at the same time, maybe it's. I think it's just a reflection of how you might be feeling and not wanting to put on this forced smile because that might not be how you feel. And even if you feel happy in that situation, plastering on this grin just just, just always feels alien to, I think, a lot of people. I don't know if you find that. Do you think that this is about seeing yourself in a picture professionally? Or you just think, do you think this more broad than just about photos in general? How you see yourself? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess you could look at it as like the, the picture of one's life and... And, and going, oh, that's nice. Like, and, like a reflect. Like, who? How do you define yourself? You don't mind seeing yourself in a picture as long as you look far removed. It doesn't necessarily mean like a photograph. You mean it could be like how people see you. Yeah, your family situation or your work situation, as you were talking about with the previous line. But I, yeah, to me, I just think it. I just always see in my mind that photo of a person where like the other three people in it are smiling away, and then the other person's just in the background, kind of looking <laughs> slightly deadpan, straight face. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's I guess it's max of like uh, kind of being uncomfortable with how you're being defined. Um, as I said, like I, I think the opening line about um, you do everything that they ask you to inherently calls out employment. You know, whoever those jerks you work for, whatever they ask me to do, I'll do it. And then when we're talking about seeing yourself in a picture, when you marry those things up, it sounds like you know, please don't define me by what I do for a living. Please don't look at me that way. Um, yeah, uh, I see it as I see this as a story of a guy who doesn't really want to be defined by the people, by the things he does for people. You know. Yeah, you almost like manage like the office softball team. It's like the guys <laughs> there like not smiling because he doesn't want to be defined in that in that context. I get that. I don't know. I always think my when people say like, "Why do you fucking smile?" It's a photograph. I'm like, "I'll smile when I'm happy." I don't know. I never want to be forced into that situation. Sure. <laughs> Showered and blue blazed, fill yourself with quarters. Showered and blue blazed, fill yourself with quarters. This is a, this is something that has like rung in my ears. Maybe it's one of that thing because it's repeated. It just sort of sticks in your head more. But like it's something that I've had rattling around my head before. Um, definitely again in, in a professional sense. Like showered and blue blazed, getting yourself like fit for other people seeing you and. and I guess it it feels very performative. Like I have to dress a certain way and put the quarters in me, like, you know, sort of like, take a breath, get ready, right? Going to go get them, you know, sort of thing. And Yeah, so going through the motions thing. Fill yourself with quarters. It always has like a robotic element to me. I always mm -hmm. imagine, you know, filling something with quarters makes me think of like a, a, like a laundrette machine or something like that. And it, putting quarters in yourself, it's almost like you're just this really kind of robust but somewhat bland machine that just Bleep <laughs> fills poop. yourself with yeah fills yourself with quarters and goes about your day i am a human yeah, I, yeah. the 
showered in blue blazer. I was the, the the blue always jumps out at me because you know we we started with this like image of somewhat corporate, and you don't think of a, like a blue blazer. It always seems somewhat like fanciful to me. It's, it's quite um, preppy almost as a blue blazer. I don't yeah, know. I think it probably is down to the fact that like the line comes from this Jonathan Ames novel, The Extra right. Man. Jonathan Ames, uh, he's, I guess he's best known for doing HBO's Bored to Death, and he mm-hmm. also wrote uh, You Were Never Really Here, which just turned into that Working in Phoenix movie. But yeah, he wrote this novel, The Extra Man, that's like about this guy living in New York, and there's a, it's a lot about, there's a lot of seediness going on, there's a lot of kind of like red light districts and drag shows and peep shows and that kind of thing. So I guess that's where the blue blazer, and the and also just the, the idea of like, you know, filling in quarters for a peep show comes from. Hmm. So this is the quote, as this is how as it appears in the book. Showered in blue blazered, we left the apartment and we headed down the stairs. The back of Henry's blazer momentarily lifted and I saw he was wearing his pants with the split seam and his bare white rear was visible. The whole thing with the National is really kind of cool in a way. Um, Jonathan Ames. First of all, in 2004, I gave a reading from my novel Wake Up, Sir, and I guess he came to the reading and gave me a CD he had made of uh, songs that he felt should be for the soundtrack of the movie of Wake Up, Sir. And, you know, this was in New York. And people would hand me things at readings. I'd be like, oh, thank you. And so I must have just taken the CD. I probably, my CD player might have been broken and just put it in this crazy pile in my apartment in Brooklyn and didn't listen to it and didn't know who this person was. And some of the songs were from some of the early national albums and then, uh, and then maybe some other songs from other bands. And then, like, uh, a few years later, I was dating some woman, and she's like, you would really like this band, The National. And I think maybe they had an album called Alligator yeah. and gave me this album, and I really loved it. And then... Um, and then I must have found this CD from the same guy in my house. It was like, oh my God, I love this band. And he'd come to my reading a few years before. I'm an idiot. I didn't realize what a cool person had walked up to me. you know. And then, um, and then the new album came out. And maybe somehow I got wind that I, I think they may have used more than one or two lines from my book. And, and I felt that whole song in some ways might have been in response a little bit to my book and even... Like, my author photo, I began to read things into it. And so I think at a certain point, he and I were interviewed together. Um, Well, I think we were on the phone. And then by chance, though, I think I ran into someone on the street. The the years blur. And I went to a party, and it was his party, or he was at the party. And so we sort of met by chance there. But I think we only met that one time by chance at a party. But we were on on the phone together. And yeah, he's been very nice about acknowledging using that line and maybe one or two other lines. And uh, so I just, yeah, I've, I was a, became a fan of the band and then very flattered that he included me. And a number of, I have to say, a, a number of people have either used lines or written songs about me. Um, years ago, there was a song called Jonathan, uh, I, I think the band was called Mimi Ferocious. Uh, something like that, and because of someone who read my columns, and then Fiona Apple wrote a song about me called Jonathan, um, and other songs that in, involve us, and um, and then you know the National, 
uh, and then I think there was another band. Yeah, so I'm very proud to like have these connections to these things. But th thank you for uh, spotting that. And but the Sheridan Blue Blazer was from my novel, The Extra Man, and it talked, to, and that was like the two characters who, you know, the young narrator saw himself as a gentleman, and so he took a shower and put on his blue blazer and headed out into the night. I was reading a ton of of his stuff, and I think he was writing columns. I think for I don't know if the Voice or or Time Out New York or I can't remember, something. And so I, I I had Wake Up Sir. I had um, I think um, in, in the Extra Man. Yeah. I think that's the Shout and Blue Blazers from that. And I was I have a tendency to to, to not finish books. Um, I fit, you know, I, I, I read, I read, you know, percentages, and I, then I tell everybody I, I read it, the whole thing. But I think I read all, I read, read, finished his books because they're so, they're full of sex. They're they're so funny. They're, he was, he, he was unapologetically like just like kind of being very. Um, uh, Kind of personally open, you know, about himself and his all his writing, and 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 and, 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 and you know, and, and kind of exploring the fringes. I don't know how much of his writing is is totally invented, and how much of it's from from you know his 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 actual uh, uh, life and stuff. But it's I, I love the fact that I that 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 he made it feel like it was it was all very uh, very true, and um, he's just a great writer. And but the but. When he when that that story about the making the mixtape for him, I had entirely entirely forgotten. In fact, um, yeah, I, I I've had different run-ins, like just crossing paths with him, just in places because of where Corinne works and everything. And and uh, <laughs> and so my most I, I had totally forgotten about that. I did talk to him and gave him, and I wish I could figure out. I wish I, I I knew what I what I'd put on that because I do remember him putting a bunch of dip, not just our stuff, but I wanted to like I wanted to like music supervise his, like the movie version of Wake Wake Up Sir. I still kind of want to, but I think they've already made it. Uh, they made the they have made the extra man with Kevin Klein. But um, yeah, so uh, but but then I I met him once at another party. Right, in somewhere, and we were both wasted. And I remember him being incredibly intimate. Um, he walks up to me and he's like, Oh, it's you, hey, and then he starts humping my leg in this uh, really gentlemanly way, <laughs> but it's so funny. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's he's I've been a big big fan, even of Bored to Death and everything. And I think he's just such a a uh, uh, a unique uh, and creative guy, and just d tries so many different styles and things. And 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 yeah, and his upper class. He di he also do dives into this like, you know, sort of upper upper East Side West Side, and then like all these like literary colonies stuff. That's just to me, there's like sexy literary worlds and uh, sexy art worlds. You know, with with a bunch of randy, frustrated, uh, passionate crazy artist uh he just <laughs> it feels like everything he does is about that and and his true love of eccentrics and his his total empathy for himself and and all the other crazy people that 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 you uh, if you take time to know are are have their have are, are you know these uh whatever he's just he's just a real 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 generous uh thinker and writer and 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 
an experiencer of life and translator of it, I guess. Yeah, he's a really brave writer. You know, there's not many people writing yeah. about how they got their first blowjob in a parking lot, you know, these days, or it's more yep. difficult to do. He was, it was cool how he put so much of himself on the page. I remember yeah. a lot of, maybe it's just, maybe I read, read it more than once, but there's a lot of butt plugs in his writing. Um, I, <laughs> just, <laughs> I could be, I could be thinking of a different writer. <laughs> I could be Grace. I was also reading a lot of Grace Paley at the time, and I, I, maybe I'm getting them confused. We worked pretty hard on the the chorus where I had half the chorus, but then there's a chord shift that happens that Bryce, that, uh, that this often happens where like I'll have a lot of something and then Bryce comes in and sort of like tweaks it a little bit. You get mistaken for strangers by your own friends when you pass them at night under the silvery, silvery city bank lights, arm in arm in arm and eyes and eyes glazing under. Oh, you wouldn't want an angel watching over. Surprise, surprise, they wouldn't want to watch. Another uninnocent, elegant fall into the unmagnificent lives of adults. It's obviously like a, a key line at the beginning there because Mistaken for Strangers is the song title and also what they ended up naming the, the documentary that uh, Matt's brother Tom made. Um, for me, like, getting mistaken for strangers by your own friends is like it's two, two interpretations that, that spring to mind. One is just the idea of you're so in your like whatever's going on with your day whether you're walking to work or just distracted by the bullshit of everyday life that you could walk right past someone that you really know and uh, that you know and and you know just and mistake them for a stranger not even realize they're there but then the other one that i always think is like when you're on a train and you see someone you know and you intentionally mistake them for a stranger you know because because you don't want to stop and have that awkward chat with them, and you don't want the stop and chat. You don't want the stop and chat, and it's and it it kind of it always feels a little bit sad because you've <laughs> I, after, I don't you know I've done it loads of times. I'm sure everyone has. Oh, yeah. I always feel a little bit shit about it. I'm like, what did I? You know, I could have just spoken to this person, but I just chose to. I just chose to ignore them to make it easier because I did. So I didn't have to like. So I could just get on with the business of doing my stupid day, whatever I'm getting <laughs> up to that at that moment. Mm. I guess for the way I take the phrase like uh, mistaken for strangers and the and all right let's let's take it with that line mistaken for strangers by your own friends um, and I think it's an incredibly adult situation it's almost like you've it, it smacks of like a detachment from your younger self where you had friends around you you were very I think that it harks back to a time when you were more in touch with friends being mistaken for a stranger by people who you once called friends signifies an evolution that you've you've become a stranger you've become someone who is maybe not as magnificent maybe not as recognizable maybe not as like not as much good stuff going on um it just it just it's a very bleak like transition from someone to a to a stranger yeah as so you you bump into that person you're like oh i thought it was you you know it takes a few seconds cuz that person's been out of your life and you've almost you've almost forgotten who they are. I picture a very busy street. Um, it helps that there's like this city bank and the lights. It's very, it, it paints a picture, but I see a very busy street and 
everyone to in that in the in the image I'm conjuring up is just an adult. It's just adults in raincoats on their way to work, and everyone's a stranger. And there's no friendships. There's no one like chatting and nice to see you. It's just everyone's fucking cold hard on the way to work. And it's a really bleak image. And I think that like the sound kind of goes with that. It's very harsh the way that the drums are are knocking together. Um, And it just, it does feel like a very, it feels like a commute. It feels like a commute of a song. And it's like... um, I think of a subway. I always picture that happening on a subway for some reason. uh And when he says... um, Past the night under the silvery, silvery Citibank lights. I always wonder with the use of Citibank there whether he's like, is that just a perfect brand to kind of sum up bland corporate America or is there like a really specific Citibank in Matt's life that he's thinking of? No, I was, no, I was, I, I had a Citibank account, you know, I think for a long time. And, and in Brooklyn, it feels like Citibanks were everywhere. I think they just, they're literally everywhere. So, and I have a, there's a particular one on, 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 um, on Court Street near the Carroll Street stop in Brooklyn where I used to live that I always, I think that's, that's where I might've, that's the one where I, where I, I imagine it when I, and it's just like a, you know, just a glass front, you know, fluorescent lights out on the sidewalk, just average Citibank, you know, and, um, and there's always somebody out out in front of it, and you always so you're like going in and out of Citibank. You always keep your head down because there's somebody outside the door. Hope you know, ask somebody looking asking for money, and and so in Brooklyn, you just in Brooklyn and New York, you find a way to just like get around with your head down a lot because you engage with everybody all the time, and it's it's, it's you know it's it's a sad thing. Um, you you sometimes you just have to ignore the world just to just to get through it, and and so that and, and so I think there's feeling depressed about all that, and then the fact that like, um, and I don't know if there was a, a specific moment. There's always moments where you like walk past somebody on the sidewalk and you're like, oh, that's so and so, but they're they're a friend, but they kind of were a friend, and like, are we still friends? And is it worth stopping? <laughs> uh, and how 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 sad that can kind of be. Because um, you go in and out of friendships and, and, and people, you know, that you you don't talk to for 10 years, then later they become dear friends again. And, and I think I was just, that, that was happening, you know. So after the silvery, silvery Citibank lights, we have arm in arm in arm and eyes and eyes glazing under. So there's a lot of this kind of, this repetition was, I mean, it's, yeah, it speaks as just being everything being cyclical and mm. the kind of, a kind of dreariness. And I just think eyes glazing under rather than glazing over is just a really nice expression like eyes glazing over is already quite a quite the image but eyes glazing under is just a great a great way to describe that feeling i guess it's like a more sinister way of like being bored (laughs) um trudging and then we come to a a line that i think is probably like a a lot of people's favorite maybe on the album oh you wouldn't want an age of watching over you surprise surprise they wouldn't want to watch that one always feels of a piece to me with um god loves everyone don't remind me mm. it's kind of speaking about heaven and god but like in the most sort of sarcastic kind of way cynical way so there's a lot of like really in- intense imagery here like you know angels and elegance and magnificence and innocence it's an angels falling you know like lucifer falling from heaven and stuff it's all but i think uh, un- unmagnificent is like the key word and it also makes me think of how like unmagnificent implies that uh, magnificence is what is what we should have and that's just such a high and that's the like the standard that we all that we all expect um you know the line the line's not that we're just living an okay life it's just like anything less than magnificent is like not enough for us and i think mm. that's 
what makes a lot of us unhappy, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Like people who, a lot of adults ask a lot of themselves and push themselves way too far. That leads to like burnout and people feeling crap about themselves. And yeah, definitely. I definitely think that lands. <laughs> Bongo Island. Yeah, that was where Brian, especially, it was in the basement of Tarkin Studios in Connecticut, in Fairfield, Connecticut, where we were, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where we were working. And um, they built sort of a, because we would spend so much time <clears throat> working on, you know, there's because we were all there. There wasn't enough, you know, if you're waiting on someone else to do something, you can get quite frustrated. So we built like a secondary, a Studio B in the basement in this kind of bad practice room with a little Pro Tools set up and all this, basically it was auxiliary percussion. And basically Brian would go down there and get really stoned and like bang on pipes and, you know, make weird noises. And then, and like a week later, he'd come back up with a hard drive full of like crazy things. But if you listen closely, you'll hear that, you know, in Mistaken for Strangers, there's a lot of it where there's, you know, him banging on random pipes and just doing things. That's probably, Bongo Island is probably how the, the oven fan and the discarded brainy outro happened. And, you know, so, but it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Make it something to believe in your heart of hearts. Say you something to wear when your sleeve of sleeves say you swear. You just saw feathery woman Carry a blindfolded man through the streets Showered and blue blazing Fill yourself with quarters Showered and blue blazing Fill yourself with quarters Make up something to believe in your heart of hearts So you have something to wear on your sleeve of sleeves so you swear you just saw a feathery woman carry a blindfolded man through the trees. This to me is all about faking it. Yeah. Make something up. You got you got to have something to say. You can't say nothing. Yeah, like finding meaning in this life it, it it could be impossible, but you kind of have to you have to cling to some theory just to be able to keep going, you know, whether it's your creative endeavors or philanthropy or family or mm. your career, you've got to find something something to believe in your heart of hearts and you know obviously the, the idea is you know wearing your heart on your sleeve it's like something to something that defines you that you <laughs> can carry around and say this is what i'm searching for because otherwise like you got otherwise you're just lost wow i hadn't thought about it that way but yeah maybe you're right like um would you say it's like if you have if you're someone who's in a job that you might struggle to look for the higher purpose you better find one anyway, because we all need like something, a higher purpose to work towards. So if you haven't got one, like if, you, if you're not in a very fulfilling situation, then like make it up. Yeah. <laughs> ah, Jesus. Now, <laughs> now we're talking about like lying to yourself to like make sure you're feeling okay at the end of the day, which is something that I think a lot of people do, myself included. Like, yeah. And it's like, you know, for those of us who like aren't religious or we're just, I don't know, we, we're polytheists and we haven't figured out what the religion is. You, you have to you know, you haven't got that deeper meaning, so you've got to just find something. Yeah, I think that I think that you were spot on when you said it about like just prescribing some meaning to something that isn't necessarily there. To it's a self comfort blanket thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's quite it's quite a sort of mocking line as well. You know, make up something to believe in your heart of hearts, like heart, playing on heart of hearts being an actual thing. Your sleeve of sleeves, like it just is kind of taking the taking the piss out of that whole that whole notion of wearing your heart on your sleeve. It's 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 a really cynical song. It's very sarcastic. Yeah. And then when he goes, uh, 
So you swear you just saw a feathery woman carry a blindfolded man through the trees. I mean, that's just some poetic jazz that I, I don't even know where to begin with. I mean, I, I think it's very much a, an ascension, you know, image of like of a of a of a, uh, you know, a soul, you know, being 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 taken away, you know, taken to heaven in a ways. Um uh, the blindfolded why is the guy blindfolded i don't i'm not sure you know um um it, it, um i know i mean i <laughs> there is a image that um I, it, I was always told of like of of when my grandmother's father so a great grandfather i guess um when my great grandfather was a kid he was in his outhouse uh in the outhouse you know as a as a little boy and he, and he saw his 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 grandmother being being carried up by angels into the sky and he tell the story and then and then later yes the grandmother had, had died then that night and they found out like two days later because they didn't have telephones or whatever um so so i think i've always had this like sort of like yeah i mean um i don't believe in angels i don't believe in in necessarily that those kind of angels in afterlife and heaven and hell stuff i think that's all right here but uh i i i love to use those images um because i do believe that the that the metaphors are, are true you know i believe in i believe in the metaphor of heaven and i believe in the metaphor of angels and and i think they're all just there's just ways of us communicating about ourselves and 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 there are true angels you know so uh and there is true hell <laughs> so so uh i think that's that's why that's that's why i that's why i think i get i always i always have have angels and stuff and you I love those closing notes. Like, yeah. Yeah, lovely. It's, yeah, it's, it really like brings brings everything down after it's been so like fraught and intense. To me, the the biggest thing in that song, um, I mean, other than what Matt is doing, which gives it substance, but the the at the end, it all shifts to instead of this loud, you know, squalls of guitar, it shifts entirely to 
oboes and bassoons yeah. and trombones playing the chordal information. And that was one of the first times that we'd kind of done something like that. Um, and it really is a big part of Boxer, I think, is that at times there's these textural shifts that happen. So it's not just like rock instrumentation. You have like other kinds of, a lot of it's on, you know, reed instruments or, or wind instruments that play. Um, and it kind of just has an emotional thing about it. Um, also there's a, there's a, there's a Scott, uh, sort of in the pre-chorus, there's this guitar part, very simple, but like very key transitional guitar part that he plays. Uh, we were, we were, we're trying to figure out how to, you have to make the song more dynamic, how to have it come up and down more. And the, the one of my favorite parts of the song is the pre-chorus. I'm not going to sing it for you, but the shadow and blue blazers fill yourself quarters, whatever the words end up. Um, and I remember, you know, we had to work really hard to constantly muting things. And it's definitely, it was mixing by committee at that point. And people were saying, turn this off, turn this back on, turn this off, turn this back on. Like, oh, like every possible combination there is. And one of my, one of my favorite things, one of the unsung heroes on that record is Scott, the bass player who doesn't always get to play bass, but he then he'll play guitar instead on a bunch of things. And um, he, ha he has a great guitar part on that pre-chorus. It's that those really pretty chimey chords are, are, are something that Scott did. Scott's guitar part to me made it. I was like, this is awesome. And I remember just one time, it's the only time I raised my voice, I think, to, to one of the, where Bryce said, what's that? Scott, turn off Scott's guitar. And I, I think like I couldn't contain myself. It's like, ah, it's the best part. You know, I got really, I was like, like, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, that, uh, that doesn't happen too often. I think that was the record too. You know, those guys have a lot of funny um, expressions. They use House of Cards, uh, Shell Game. Uh, then there's uh, CBA. And CBA stands for can't be argued, but you can only pull out a CBA maybe once a record where you just CBA. So that was my CBA. You can't turn off Scott's guitar in the pre-chorus. And all those little bits, like without that, if you remove any one of those things, like if Brian's drum beat wasn't there or if the pre-chorus guitar part or, you know, the shift at the end, um, it would, I feel like it wouldn't work. It would sort of fall flat. And that's, this is still the challenge with national songs. Like they're not good until they're good. So they're like bad until they're good. And it's usually one, it's like the, those final details really matter for us for some reason. So it's because nobody can sit down and play you with one instrument. Nobody comes in with a fully written thing, you know, it's like yeah. the music might be on its own compelling or Matt has great words. And, but when everything comes together and collides, there's definitely something that happens. So, um, but yeah, that was the, that was mistaken for strangers was the first quote unquote rock song that came together for boxer, you know, and it was, we were, I remember being really excited about it, but then there were no others for quite a long time, you know, that were actually finished. So it got, it got a little, a little dicey there. So there's like so much repetition is built up in the song by that point, you know, we've been arm and arm and arm, eyes and eyes, heart of hearts, sleeve of sleeves, it just mm -hmm. creates this feeling of going around in circles, you know, and mm -hmm. walking back and forth under those Citibank lights like twice a day on yep. your commute. It's yes, yeah, it's, it's just it's a song about monotony and the, the dreariness of adulthood, I guess. Um, you know, when you're a kid, you can't wait to grow up, but it's the it's the lives of kids that often seem more beautiful or something that an angel might actually want to watch. A hundred percent. That's exactly how I feel. It's, it is such a, uh, an adult song on the album. It is a song about like going out to work and becoming that person who goes to work. Um, and that's why I think that that, 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 
that key line is about the magnificent lies of adults. Um, you wouldn't want an angel watching over like these are these are not interesting lies we're living down here. Um, surprise, surprise, they wouldn't want to watch. And another uninnocent, elegant fall into the unmagnificent lives of adults. It's, it's one of these lines from um, the National that has always haunted me. And like when I find myself in like a, a boring meeting or like trudging through the commute, I'm sometimes like self-critical, like, what am I doing? Like, is this interesting? Like, you do worry um, that you're that you're not living that best life sort of thing. And um, I'm reminded of, there was a really good, um, there's a good interview, uh, someone called Gene Fury interviewed Matt uh, a few, quite a few years back now, I think it was like 2011, um, and specifically called out on our magnificent life and asked like, what do you do to avoid it? Point blank to Matt. I think Matt's answer was really lovely because it, it, it once encapsulates what exactly what we're talking about, but it also has an answer to it. So I'll just read this quote from Matt. He says, um, he said, it's, it's hard to have a magnificent life, um, even as you grow up. I think that song is about missing an abstract notion of what it was like to be young and without responsibility. There are a few songs that talk about reckless youth and a desire for it, when the truth is, they also mention that in hindsight, the stuff that seems so great, but teenage years and adolescence are actually the most heartbreaking and difficult times. Um, he goes on to say that, you know, as people grow up, you start to find routines that are hard to get out of. You don't see friends as much. So I like, I completely am in the in the part of the quote that refers to feeling monotonous as you commute to work and, and feeling like you're living a very, like all adults are just assimilating. Like we all have uh, bills to pay. We all have to go out and do our jobs, which are very rarely the thing that you envisioned you would be doing when you were a teenager. And we look back at those reckless years when you had less commitments and less um, responsibility. But I really love that Matt brings it back to a point of reality. Like we're always looking at um, those moments through rose-tinted lenses. Those halcyon days where you were a younger version of yourself are always going to be romanticised in your head. Um, and I think that like as much as the um, the the message is, is I'm, I'm so with it. I love that the song ends on those nice sort of like two two little notes at the end that to just drown us out. And I love that Matt brought that explanation of our magnificent lives back to a place of actually like, you know, it's not it's not that bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's tricky because yeah, we do we do massively romanticize childhood, and then you think back to your teenage years and think about how there generally more tears during those years and. That, that kind of intense heartache you experience when you're a teenager but is it but is it is it intense like you you have all these memories that of, of like of like feeling really like upset but they're all so, seem somehow on a surface level and it's I always feel like the feeling of like true depression is something that more sets in in adulthood it, you know almost almost like almost like a toddler you know a toddler cries all the time but it's not really hopefully you know it's not about anything majorly serious and they kind of get over it and I think you you're a little bit like that during your childhood during your teenage years as well whereas there's this kind of like general malaise and un unhappiness that you you experience in these moments like the commute so it's it's hard yeah it's we shouldn't over romanticize childhood because it's not perfect but I think I, st I, I still I still ultimately end up siding with the song and seeing the beauty in childhood I think hmm. and I think the song doesn't really get into what Matt's saying there about how maybe maybe childhood isn't all it's cracked up to be, but mm. I guess it's something that the album might might goes on to explore. Yeah, you're right. As a standalone song, uh, 
Like, like, so that yes, you're right. That quote where Matt was talking to Gene Fury, he he is talking about the wider themes of the album. I think he is saying that there there are moments that sort of point out that those moments may not have been quite as uh, good as we romanticised them to be. And Mistake of the Strangers, as an isolated piece of work, is ostensibly talking about the drudge and the the, the, the grey moments and the assimilation of lots of fine young fun people into boring grey adults and. Ah, that's a bit tough, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I've, as I said, I definitely have been there as an unmagnificent adult myself, um, going back to the tube station again and again and again and just feeling like it's just endless and those repetitive eyes and eyes and eyes, arms and arms and arms, hearts and hearts and hearts, sleeves and sleeves and sleeves. It's tiring and it's <laughs> it's a, it's a very uh yeah I'd say that if if you had to sort of if someone if someone who hadn't heard mistaken for strangers like asked you what it was you'd be like I guess it's like a uh, a man's thoughts on like becoming someone who has a job becoming a, a doing adulting yeah <laughs> adult learning to adult it actually reminds me of uh, maybe we will leave it on this there's um it's a poem by Ezra Pound called In a Station of the Metro, set in like the Paris Metro subway system. Um, and it was apparently it was like all kinds of there were loads of verses and he kept on editing and cutting it back and cutting it back. Then after the, by the end of it, he just decided it was just a one one line poem. And so it's called In the Station of the Metro. And I think if I remember it correctly, it goes uh, the apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bow. <laughs> <laughs> Coffee and Flowers is brought to you by Vero, a subscription-based social network which respects your privacy and doesn't sell your data to advertisers. Follow Coffee and Flowers and Vero to find and search all the songs, books, films and other things that we reference in each of the episodes. Download Vero for free on iOS and Android. Go to get.vero.co slash coffee and flowers. That's get.vero.co slash coffee A-N-D flowers. Coffee and Flowers is hosted by Christopher Hooten and David Rapson and produced by Christopher Bolson. Julian Wharton composed the theme and engineers the show at the Bison Room in London. Special thanks this episode to Jonathan Ames.